0: Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that, as these songs um, reminded us, how can we keep from singing and from worshiping and from praising you? You are a good God. You are a God who is um, kind to your people. We do not deserve anything. We deserve. Hell and condemnation, and yet you've given us life. You've made us your children through Jesus Christ. Even even this week, as we remember the coming and the entrance into Jerusalem of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, Father, help us not to waste this week. Help us not to be so distracted by the peripheral things of life that we do not contemplate and reflect upon His humanity and what He did. The fact that He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, which we celebrate on Friday together, I pray that we might celebrate what he's done, that we might be reminded of the fact that because he's risen from the dead, that we one day in Christ will rise from the dead as well. Father, help us, help us to be people who celebrate that great truth and proclaim Christ between these two advents, that we would make him known so that others would come to be raised from the dead as well in the future when he returns. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, turning your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20, is our text for this morning. And the title of this morning's message is Christ's Power Over Demons. Christ's Power Over Demons. Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. They came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes. When he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain. Because he had often been bound with shackles and chains. And the chains had been torn apart by him. And the shackles broken in pieces. And no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs. And in the mountains and gashing himself with stones, seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him and shouting with a loud voice, he said, what business do we have with each other? Jesus, son of the most high God, I implore you by God, do not torment me, for he had been saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, what is your name? And he said to him, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there was a herd of, large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. The demons implored him, saying, "'Send us into the swine so that we may enter them.' Jesus gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. Their herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and in the country." And the people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed in his right mind, the very man who had had the legion, and they became frightened. Those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. And they began to implore him to leave their region. And he was getting into the boat. The man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. And he did not let him But he said to him, Go home to your people and report to him what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. This is the Word of God. Well, did you know that since the movie uh, titled The Exorcist in 1973... More than 100 plus movies about demons have been made. More than that. This is not including, of course, um, movies about the supernatural. Movies that have to do with the devil, with Satan, with dark, the dark spiritual world, the dark spiritual realm. If you added all of those, those are literally in the hundreds, maybe even over a thousand in the last few decades Movies that have surrounded that theme of, of the spiritual, supernatural realm. The Possession of Hannah Grace is a movie that came out in 2018. That was one of close to 50 movies. 50 movies since 2015 that have been made surrounding the issue of spiritual dark powers. The Hollow came out, I think, in 2015, which was about spiritual, dark spiritual forces. And you know what this tells us about our culture? Besides the fact that obviously Hollywood um, is banking, uh, making bank on people um, who love to just get freaked out and stared about movies like that? It tells us, beloved, that people, including us, are very aware of the forces of evil. That people are, are very much, they have an innate interest, an innate awareness of the spiritual realm. It tells us that people know that spiritual forces are real. And they know this reality. It's deeply embedded in each of us, isn't it? That there, are, there is a dark spiritual realm. That there is a, while we live in the physical world, um, and that is our reality every single day, there are spiritual forces that are at work. We're reminded of that in Ephesians chapter 6, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. We know that as Christians as well. And yet, God is greater than demons, right? Jesus is greater than demons. Demons, as we're going to see in a few minutes, demons obey Jesus. In fact, if you are a Christian this morning... And that is the big key. If you are in Christ, if you are in union with Christ, Christ is in you, you are in Christ, you've turned from your sins, you've trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you cannot be indwelt, inhabited, possessed by a demon. Did you hear that? That should be a great encouragement to us and a great comfort. Do we struggle, as Ephesians chapter 6 talks about, against spiritual forces in this world, even as Christians? Absolutely. And we can be influenced by Satan's spiritual realm, uh, evil spiritual realm, the world system in which we live in. But we cannot be indwelt, possessed, or inhabited by a demon. In fact, there is not one reference. Not one reference in all of the Bible, Old Testament or New Testament, that speaks about the fact that a believer, somebody who, who is a Christian, can be indwelt, inhabited, or possessed by a demon. Not one. Not one. In addition, there are scripture scriptures that encourage us along the lines of how should we think about the, the evil spiritual realm of Satan? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 says that you as a Christian are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Listen, God doesn't share His temple, i.e. your body, with anyone else if you are a Christian. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit. Demons cannot possess you. Colossians chapter 1 verse 13 says that Christians have been rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of the Son of His love, namely Christ. You have been rescued from the domain of darkness. You're no longer under the control of demonic influence. Romans chapter 8, verses 37 through 39 speak of the fact that we as Christians are overwhelming conquerors in Christ Jesus, and nothing can separate us from the love of God which is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the key is that you are in who? Christ. Christ. Without Him, you're susceptible to anything, any evil force. 1 John chapter 2, verses 13 and 14 speaks about the fact that believers have overcome the evil one. If you are in union with Christ, you are an overcomer in Christ. 1 John chapter 4, verse 4 says that greater is he, Christ, who is in you than he who is in the world, namely Satan and his evil spirits. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Beloved, if you are a Christian this morning, if you belong to Christ... If you are His, Satan nor his demons have ultimate power over you or dominion over you. None. By contrast, if you are a non-Christian this morning, you have not turned from your sins and trusted in Jesus, you can be directly susceptible to being possessed and dwelt, inhabited by demons, or you can indirectly be influenced by by the evil world system around you, you have no power outside of Christ to overcome Satan's evil world system. Not in this life, not ultimately when you stand before God someday. You're susceptible to this evil world system. In fact, you're part of this evil world system. 1 John chapter 5, verse 19 says that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, namely Satan. Does that mean that he has absolute or ultimate authority here on this earth? As we're going to see, no, he doesn't. It's a delegated, for a period of time, influence in this world while the gospel is being preached. And so how does Satan exercise his influence in this evil world system? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 says that the God, with a little g, the God of this world, Satan, in other words, has blinded the eyes of those who don't believe in Jesus Christ. How does Satan influence this world system? The greatest way is by you not believing in Jesus Christ. By not trusting Him. By not acknowledging the fact that He's God. That He went to the cross and paid for your sins. That He absorbed God's wrath for your sins. That He rose from the dead three days later. And you've trusted in this Christ. The way that Satan influences you as a non-believer is by causing you to reject Jesus Christ that deceive you into thinking that you can be okay by your own good works and be saved by your own good works, that there will not be a judgment of the living and the dead someday. He lies to you. He deceives you. And ultimately, He causes you to reject Christ. And that's not to say that the non-believer, the non-Christian, is not responsible for his or her decision. We are absolutely responsible beings. But ultimately, we know that when, when we reject Jesus Christ, God's provision for the forgiveness of our sins and for eternal life for us, ultimately, we are succumbing to the great deceiver, Satan himself. The God with the liturgy of this world to His influence. This is why between the two advents of Christ, as our pa- one of our pastors, Alex, mentioned earlier, between Christ's first and second coming, we are to preach Christ, beloved. We are to preach the gospel of Christ so that people may be reminded of the fact that Jesus alone is powerful to set the captives free from their sin and from ultimate punishment and their con- the consequences of their sin. And so this morning we have the wonderful privilege to see Christ at work yet again. And one of the most captivating accounts in the life of our Lord. This wonderful account of the Gerasene demoniac. The Gerasene demoniac. All three synoptic gospels. The synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they're called synoptic because they are similar to one another. In nature, there's many of the same accounts that they they all um, write about. From different angles and different perspectives, they're called the synoptic gospels. All three Matthew, Mark, and Luke have this particular account in their particular gospel. Matthew has seven verses in Matthew chapter eight verses twenty eight to thirty four on the, uh, talking about this particular instance in the life of our Lord. Luke chapter eight verses 26 to thirty nine has fourteen verses about this garrison demoniac. but Mark, listen to this, Mark spends twenty verses giving even more details and more specifics about this particular situation. And remember, first and foremost, the the ultimate author of the Gospel of Mark is the Holy Spirit. But from a human perspective, if you remember, from a human perspective, Peter, the Apostle Peter, an eyewitness of this particular account is the one who's bearing testimony to Mark so that Mark is very detailed, oftentimes in his accounts that he has in his gospel about things that happen that the other gospel writers don't include. And so all of these three accounts are crucial. They give us details from a different perspective, but Mark really elaborates on this. All three accounts place these, this event immediately after the stilling of the storm. And it is a wonderful example yet again of christ's power we have really a trilogy here mark is giving us a trilogy showing us the unrivaled power of christ christ is unrivaled in his power over nature in the calming of the storm last week as we saw today he shows us his unrivaled power over the spiritual world and next week we're going to see how mark shows us his great power over jesus's great power over disease and death So let's look at this wonderful account, these 20 verses here from the Gospel of Mark. And we're going to look at these in five movements, five movements, as if you're watching a a movie. Here are five scenes that we're going to look at, which together point to the unrivaled power of Jesus over the spiritual realm, over specifically the demonic realm. So let's look at this amazing account. Scene number one, we'll call it From Calm to Chaos, from calm to chaos in verses 1 through 5. And it really focuses on how the situation once again, now Jesus has just calmed the storm. And as they're arriving to the eastern shore, once again there's, there's chaos in the life of our Lord. There's turmoil among, uh, with these disciples because of something that takes place surrounding this man who is possessed, who is inhabited by a demon. Look at verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gerasenes, Verse 2, when he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. I mean, there's no rest for the weary, right? I mean, over and over again, we see this in the life of our Lord. Not too long before this, Jesus and his disciples are crossing from the western shores of the Sea of Galilee, now to the eastern shore. Jesus wants them to retreat for a period of time. He has, however, a divine appointment on the eastern side. And in the middle of that, Jesus is abrasively awakened by his disciples, because there's this mean storm that is taking place. And Jesus, of course, shows his great power in calming this storm And it's not too long after that, maybe even minutes, we don't know, that all of a sudden things go to chaos again. Because there's this man with an unclean spirit, according to verse 2, who meets them. I mean, can you imagine? All of a sudden, as they're barely arriving to the eastern shore, this crazy man is running toward Jesus and his disciples. What would go through your mind? Running towards them. Maybe the disciples, or not maybe, they definitely are surprised. But Jesus isn't surprised, is he? He had a divine appointment, beloved, to this eastern shore, knowing that this is something that God his Father had called him to encounter. And so here's this man from the tombs, verse 2, with an unclean spirit he's indwelt with, possessed by a filthy, immoral spirit. Like the one back in the uh, the demon-possessed man, back in chapter 1 of Mark in the synagogue. This man has an immoral spirit. Now, Matthew mentions two men, uh, but Mark and Luke only mentioned one man who was specifically the spokesman. So Mark focuses on this one who was the spokesman. Notice where he lived. Verse 3, and he had his dwelling among the tombs. I mean, this guy has come in and he basically lives at the local cemetery. He's coming and he's, he's from these natural caves or rock-hewn caverns on the side of the hills. That's what the, their cemeteries were like. And he's a, a social outcast uh, voluntarily because of the fact that he's a crazy man. He's a lunatic man. And he's got supernatural strength. Notice verse 3. And no one, verse 3, was able to bind him anymore even with a chain. The Greek there in verse 3 literally reads this. Not even with a chain no longer could no one bind him. All of these negatives, full of negatives in the Greek, no, not, no one, to emphasize the utter inability of anyone to be able to restrain him from a human perspective due to his unrivaled power from a human perspective. No one could control this man. No one could harness this man. How strong was he? Look at verse 4. Because he had often been bound with shackles, and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him, to harness this man repeatedly. If you can imagine, person after person, maybe groups of people would get together and try to harness this man with with these shackles, these cords or chains for his ankles, and these chains, these strong metal bonds. But easily this man had torn these apart and shattered them like pottery. Easily. Easily. He was like the Incredible Hulk, minus the green, right? A strong man who could not be controlled or harnessed with supernatural strength. Normal humans, beloved, or normal human means could not control this individual. That's how powerful he was. To the point that Matthew chapter 8, verse 28 says that they were so exceedingly violent, these men, that no one could even pass by that road. People were afraid of these individuals. Their lives were in danger if they even came around them anymore. And it seems that this thing had gotten worse and worse. This man's condition and possession by these demons. But above all, don't miss his misery. He was continually tortured. Look at verse 5. Constantly. That is continually. Night and day he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. Listen, This man would run around screaming with this foreign, otherworldly, frightening shriek. Something that was unrecognizable by normal human beings. It was otherworldly, foreign, frightening. I grew up in Mexico City in a very poverty-stricken area, in a poverty-stricken colony, where there was this 13 to 14-year-old young man I remember. And I was a younger kid at the time. But I remember this, this, this guy that they used to call El Loco, the crazy guy, the crazy guy, because he ran around yelling filthy profanities, half naked, always dirty, he would constantly be beating himself, and other people would beat him as well, but he, he just looked awful. And two or three blocks away, as we would often play soccer out on the streets, we can hear this man, this, this young man in his pain, and these loud shrieks, that would come from him. And we knew that he was coming so everybody would would run into their homes and and protect themselves for a period of time because we didn't want any exposure to this young man. He was a lunatic. A crazy young man. If you can imagine in a greater way, that's what you have here. Think of a zombie on steroids here. Right? Looked awful. He must have resembled a monster rather than a human being. And yet Jesus has compassion on this man as we're going to see. He has compassion on him. Here's this naked. And Luke chapter 8, verse 27 tells us that, that he had not put on any clothing for a long time. He ran around naked. He's unclean. He's this monster-looking man, a lunatic with supernatural strength, isolated by choice. He's a social outcast. Everyone was afraid of him. Think about that. But above all, beloved... As we've seen over and over again in the life of our Lord, what did Jesus see in this man more than anything else? He saw that this man was lost and in deep darkness, right? It's a demon-possessed man. He had, he had spiraled downward so terribly that he was indwelt, inhabited by demonic influence. And I understand that, that most of us will, will never be exposed or have never been exposed or perhaps um, have never even been around such a thing. That this isn't even something that you've ever experienced in your life. And so we might be tempted to, to think of ourselves as different, even as Christians. Well, we would never that bad. Prior to knowing Jesus, I never got to that point where I was even inhabited by a demon. But I want you, beloved, to recognize that before coming to Christ, while each of us may not have been directly indwelt with, possessed, controlled by demons, we were certainly under the influences of the evil spiritual realm right we were by nature children of wrath even as the rest ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 says that and you were dead in your spiritual trespasses and sins we're going to look at that text next sunday resurrection sunday you were dead in your trespasses and sins and you were walking according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience Thus, among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Paul says, oh, praise God that we're no longer there because you were in that dark side. You were not In the light. You weren't walking in the light. And so all of us were there, weren't we? We were living in spiritual darkness. Sinclair Ferguson insightfully writes this Legions, and Legion is the name of the demon, as we're going to see, Legion's story records in capital letters what is true of all humans by nature that we are slaves to evil, that we are not free. I love that. Stop right there. You know, people often think, you know what? I don't want to come to Christ because I don't want to be tied down. I'm not going to have fun anymore. I'm going to miss out on this thing or that thing. I don't want to be tied down. I want to be free. Can I remind you right now that if you are not in Christ, you are not free. Did you hear me? You are not free. Stop deceiving yourself. You are either a person whose master is Jesus Christ, who is a good master, who does, who gives you instructions to obey for His glory and your ultimate good, or your master is Satan and you are self indulging in your own sin. Your master is yourself, ultimately Satan, the God of this world. There's no neutrality. There's no neutral in life. Listen, you're either on the good side or you're the bats on you're on the bad side. All right. You're either walking in the kingdom of light or you're walking in the kingdom of darkness. And it's going to show forth in your affections what you love and how you live as a result of what you love. You love Christ. You will walk in righteousness in the light. You love the devil and Satan and you love to worship yourself. It will show forth in the way that you live in disobedience to God, your creator, who created you for his glory and for your ultimate good. There's only two sides, my friend. There's the broad way that leads to destruction and there's a narrow way that leads to life. There's a kingdom of light and a kingdom of darkness. There's a good side and there is a bad side. There are enemies of God and there are children of God who have put their faith in Jesus Christ alone and are adopted by God, your creator, as your father. He is now your father if you put your faith in Jesus Christ. There are only two sides. And you're either on one side or the other. Stop claiming neutrality. It doesn't matter if you turn off the volume right now of what you are hearing. It doesn't change the reality of your spiritual state as one who is dead in your trespasses and sins. Do you understand that? Stop pretending that you're neutral because you're not. It doesn't matter if you're indifferent to the things that I'm preaching about right now from God's word. It doesn't change the reality that you're dead in your trespasses and sins and you must be born again. It doesn't matter how much you convince yourself by your irrational standards that this is not true. The reality is you're dead in your trespasses and sins and you need Christ. You need Christ. The Christ that we're celebrating about this week during Passion Week. Who went to the cross to die for your sins. Who absorbed the wrath of God for your personal sins and rose again. Next Sunday we're going to celebrate this over sin and death victorious. Amen. You must trust in this one. There's no neutrality. He goes on. We are bent ultimately on self-destruction. Neither we ourselves nor others are capable of breaking the powers which have bound us. And here's my favorite part. Christ alone can break the power of sin in our lives and set us free. End quote. Christ alone. Christ alone. Only Christ can rescue us. Only Christ could rescue this demoniac, this man from his torture, the hands of this demon here, physical and spiritual. Jesus came to deliver this man. And so we see that this is what begins to happen next in the second scene. Scene two, we'll call it from tormentor to servant, from tormentor to servant. Scene two, the camera now focuses in verses six through 10 on, on this demon who goes from tormentor to servant here's this vicious demon who's inflicting pain and misery upon this man but notice what happens when jesus arrives on the scene look at verse six seeing jesus from a distance he ran up now let me ask you again here you are a disciple right peter or one of these guys and all of a sudden you see this guy running this crazy man running down full throttle what are you thinking Ay, 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 here we go again, right? I mean, they wouldn't have said ay, ay, ay because they weren't Hispanic. Whatever the Jewish version of that was, right? Whatever the Jewish version was of ay, 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 they would have said it, okay? What's that? Hey, mate. Okay, there you go. Or whatever else. Here we go again, right? Here we go again for crying out loud. Can we ever get any rest, Lord? Was Jesus surprised? Jesus wasn't surprised. Here's this man running towards the boat. You would be in terror. You're thinking he's going to attack, but Christ is not surprised. But what does this man do in verse 6? Notice, he ran up and bowed down before him. This is a posture of submission of a servant to a superior. This demon, as powerful as we're going to hear right now that he is, is more than one bows to Jesus the Lord. He knows who he's dealing with. Look at verse 7. And shouting with a loud voice, he was continually doing this. He said, What business do we have with each other? Jesus, Son of the Most High God. You think the demons know theology? Oh yeah. They know theology. James 2.19 says that the demons also believe that God is one and shudder. They know the oneness of God, the unity of God. They have a, a theological understanding and that should be a warning to us that you can have knowledge, you can have intellectual understanding about a lot of things about the Bible, grown up in the church, memorized a lot of Awana verses, been in a lot of Bible studies, a lot of small groups, but if you have not been gripped by that theology, especially the person and the work of Jesus in your heart so that your affections are moved and you have, you have learned to come to love and to treasure and to give your life to this one, it doesn't matter how much you know it doesn't matter the demons are a perfect example right have perfect theology they know jesus like the demon back in the synagogue in mark chapter 1 right who acknowledged jesus for who he is as well but notice he acknowledges Jesus' authority over him he has a posture of submission and he begs jesus for mercy in verse 7 if you notice i implore you by god do not torment me do not torment me. What a hypocrite, isn't he? Think about this. What a hypocrite. I implore you by God. He's begging Jesus by God. Do not torment me. And what has he been doing to this man? Doing the exact same thing. Right? One pastor writes this, quote: Behold, the tormentor anticipating, dreading, and entreating exemption from torment. End quote. He's pleading for the very thing that he should have For this man. Now he's asking for mercy. Because Jesus had already been ordering him. If you notice in verse 8. For Jesus had been saying to him. Come out of the man. You unclean spirit. And it was an order. A command. Jesus wasn't using some hocus pocus formula. Abracadabra. He's ordering this demon to leave this man. And this is very strategic of Jesus. What happens in verse 9. If you notice. And Jesus was asking him, what is your name? Obviously, Jesus is not asking this from this man because he doesn't know the answer, but because he wants to highlight and show the power and the seriousness of this man's terrifying condition. So watch this, verse 9. And he said to him, my name is what? Legion, for we are many. Legion was a Latin term that referred to 6,000 Roman soldiers. When people heard the terminology legion, right, in that day and age, the, under the, the, the empire of the, Roma, of the Romans, they understood that it was a well-organized, vast, powerful, invincible army, the Roman legion. And so what you have is this demon is the spokesman for a a full-orbed evil army of demons lined up in battle array against the unrivaled one, Christ. No wonder no human or human device could harness him. It's a lot of demons. And yet, throughout, what do we see? That they are in submission to our Lord, right? Look at verse 10. And he began to implore him... We've already seen him imploring in verse 7. He implores again in verse 10. I mean, this is a posture of humility, of begging, of appealing to the one who is Lord. Implored him earnestly not to send them out of the country. The text doesn't say why they were begging him to stay in that region. It's just their request. Simple request. We do get a hint in the parallel passage of Luke 8.31, which says that they were begging not to be thrown into the abyss The abyss is the ultimate official demon jail, right? Known in Revelation chapter 20 as the lake of fire reserved for Satan and his demons. This is where Satan and his demons will ultimately wind up. Listen, demons know of ultimate judgment. They know where they are headed, beloved. They know who Jesus is. They know what Jesus was going to do, that he was going to go to the cross and die for sins. They knew that. They know already that he's already overcome for 30 plus years. He's lived a perfect life blameless life so that he is the only worthy one to go to the cross as a spotless sinless lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world they know that they know that he's already be overcome satan at the temptation they know about jesus's victory they know where they are headed they know that the victory is already secured you understand they know that Christ is going to the cross and He's going to rise from the dead three days later. Satan's going to try to do everything possible, including in the Garden of Gethsemane, to try to stop that. It won't work. It won't work. If you are in Christ then, you don't need to fear, beloved. Christ is greater, isn't He? Christ is greater. Though tormentors of this man, demons are servants of the unrivaled Christ. Christ. Unrivaled Christ. Scene three. Scene three. We'll call this From Feasting to Slaughter. From Feasting to Slaughter. This focuses now, the camera focuses on, on an interesting group, the piggies. The pigs. Look at verse 11. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the on the mountain. Now this is very important that we stop right there, okay? This is very important. According to Old testament law, what do we know about pigs? They're considered unclean, right? They're considered unclean. Swine or pigs are considered unclean. And so, listen, on this eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, it was a largely Gentile, non-Jew, that is, non-Jewish population, largely Gentile. But there were Jews who were also there, and these Jews were more what you would call Hellenized Jews. Jews who had adopted the Greek or Roman culture as their own, who lived more like Jews or Romans than like Jews. Very important to understand this. They lived more like Gentiles in that day and age. And so what you have here, potentially... Most conservative commentators believe this, that if you have Jews here, Hellenistic Jews who have this pig business over here, then what are they doing? They're making illegal profit on that side at the expense of the Gentiles, right? That's what's taking place. And I think that is the case. And so Jesus' actions then, if this is the case, become very much an act of judgment from a human level upon the Hellenistic Jews of that eastern shore of the Decapolis. These ten cities that were largely Gentile cities. Look at verse 12. The demons implored him saying, send us into the swine so that we may enter them. They're not asking to possess other humans. They know that their power is over. And so they beg, don't send us out of the country. Don't send us into the abyss. Send us into the swine. Into the swine. And in case there was any question of who's in charge, look at verse 13. Jesus gave them what? Permission. Does that sound like somebody who needed to ask Satan for some permission? Hey, Satan, can you come and help me handle your force here? Jesus said, it just says, Jesus gave them permission. And coming out, verse 13, the unclean spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. The whole herd stampedes down the slope, plunges in the sea, and they Perish. These little piggies didn't go home, did they? These little piggies went right down the slope and they went from feasting to what? Slaughter. To slaughter. We might ask, what ultimately happened to the demons? What ultimately happened to the demons? What happened to those guys? What happened to all of those demons? What happened to Legion? What happened to them? Drum roll? Answer? I don't know. The text doesn't say, does it? The text doesn't say. We don't know. Maybe the abyss waiting for their friends to arrive there later. We just don't know. The text doesn't say. Another question that arises is this. Why did Jesus do things this way? Why did Jesus do things this way? I think there are some good reasons among others to consider. First, I think the slaughter of the pigs, think about it, Visibly, graphically showed how destructive demons are. Whatever they indwell, they destroy, don't they? Whatever they indwell, they destroy. In this case, two thousand pigs in the sea perish as a case in point of how powerful demonic indwelling is. Any skeptics who've read this account cry outrage! Outrage! Animal rights people cry, outrage, this is so inhumane. Here's another example of that terrible Jesus in the Gospels killing poor little animals, right? All the while, they love to serve themselves a nice plate of ham and bacon and eggs every morning, right? Maybe for some others of us, some carnitas, tacos, pork meat. But we cry outrage, right, to the fact that Jesus could have done this to 2,000 pigs. enough of that. Those poor little piggies went down and were destroyed and slaughtered. Second, I think this was a display of judgment upon the Jews living in that land, as we've already alluded, who had this unclean business of selling pork to these Gentiles. It was a judgment against their materialism, right? They loved profit more than the souls of people. Third, I think Jesus did it this way to visibly show, graphically show, This man, he would never again be controlled by these demons. He would never be tortured this way again. When Christ delivers you, he delivers you definitively, doesn't he? The demons are gone. They're never to indwell or possess this man again. Oh, beloved, listen. He whom Christ saves from sins also, and from the penalty of sin, Jesus also delivers from the power of sin, right? If you submit to him, if you fill your mind with his word and you respond in obedience to him, if you walk by the Spirit, listen, you can experience power over your sin as a believer. So this graphically showed this man this. But four, and most importantly, don't miss this, as with every single account in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus once again graphically and visibly shows his power, his unrivaled power, and his identity as God, Right? He's God. This is Mark's ongoing drumbeat, isn't it? Jesus is unrivaled. He's the unstoppable, incomparable one. No one has the authority and the power that Jesus Christ has. He's shown us his power over human history in chapter 1, and that after many, many sinners in the Old Testament who were part of God's plan and failed over and over again, even then Jesus comes in chapter 1 of Mark in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, and he arrives on the scene just as God had planned it. Power over human history and the event, sovereign over the events of human history. He's shown us his power over Satan He did what the second, the first Adam could not do. Jesus is the the second Adam, the representative who has been victorious over Satan and didn't succumb to the onslaughts of Satan at the temptation. He's unrivaled in power over Satan. He's unrivaled in power over human hearts whom Jesus calls to follow cannot, cannot, cannot not respond, right? Jesus calls, human hearts respond. He has power over the spiritual realm, as we've seen. He has power over the human realm, over sickness and deadly fevers and paralysis and leopards. He has, he, has, he has power, unrivaled power over nature, in the previous passage, calming the storm. And here he has power over an army of vicious demons, over and over again. This is the drumbeat of the Gospel of Mark, beloved. Beloved. We worship the un- uncomparable one. He who is the God man. He who, there's no trial in your life that Jesus can allow and empower you to live well under. Do you understand? Physical or spiritual. There is nothing in your marriage that God cannot help you. Jesus Christ can help you live as a godly, submissive wife with your husband in that home and as a man who loves your wife as Christ loves the church. Jesus is more than powerful to allow you to do that if you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian, then you need to come to know Christ because that's how you're going to have the power to be able to live victoriously in your marriage. Come to Christ. He has all the power that you need, doesn't he? He has power like this over the demonic realm. Cannot he help us to overcome our our sins? The things that we struggle with? Pornography in secret? Confess your sin? Come to Jesus? Confess your sin and be renewed at the cross of Christ and know that he can help you overcome sexual immorality in your life? He can help us in this hostile world, beloved. He can grant us the power to be witnesses for his name here on this earth, can't he? Oh, the one who is able to do this to demons, demons submit to him, has unrivaled power. He has an endless reservoir of ability and strength for us to be able to come to him. And he can save you from your sins this morning. He can. Well, what was the effect of Jesus' miracle? This leads us to scene four. Scene four, and we'll call this from riches to rags, from riches to rags. Typically, it's from rags to riches, right? But this, these Hellenistic Jews go from riches to rags. The focus is on these people who are profiting from selling pigs and suffer great loss. Look at verse 14. Their herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and in the country Quickly, word gets around to the people working in the fields and in the surrounding region. Have you heard about this guy, Jesus, what he did and what happened to the thousands of piggies? Have you heard what happened here? Verse 14, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. Who knows how many, maybe hundreds, maybe thousands of people come from the Decapolis, from these cities, these Gentile cities, because they're hearing the word on the street about this Jesus. Verse 15, they came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down. See those little asterisks there in verse 15 in 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 our English Bibles? See those? They signal historical present tense verbs. They picture these actions as if, as if they're happening in real time before, as if we were playing this scene out behind us on the, on, on the screen. They come to Jesus. They're observing the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down. Before your very eyes this is happening. Here was the man they knew most likely before he was demon possessed and they saw the spiraling effect of sin and of demon possession over his life who had become a scary monster before their eyes living naked in these tombs screaming and shrieking. But now what's going on with him? Verse 15, he's clothed in his right mind. He's acting human again. Not like a madman. What a miracle! What What a miracle the verse fifteen, the very man who had had the legion, a powerful army of demons, has been expulsed from this man, and I want every single one of you to look at the end of verse fifteen, all right? look at it. If you don't have a Bible, share it with somebody next to you, okay? Look at the end of verse fifteen and answer this question: How did they rejoice over this miracle? They rejoiced, right? That's what it says, right? And they they said, praise God! Thank you, Jesus! Oh, how we needed this deliverer to come to the eastern shores of Galilee. Is that what your English Bible say? No. It says, and they became frightened. They became frightened. They were filled with fear, not reverential awe as in like the disciples in chapter 4 verse 41 after jesus calms the storms they were they were very much afraid as reverential awe they were filled with wonder wondering who this one was right jesus ever before them they're afraid but not unto faith they're afraid of christ's power but not unto faith notice verse 16 those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon possessed man and all about the swine and here's their conclusion in verse 17. And they began, note this, to implore him to leave their region. Have you noticed in this narrative how much imploring there, there is? Imploring in verse 7, don't torment us. Imploring in verse 10, don't send us into the, out of this, this country. I'm um, imploring in verse 12, send us into the swine. And here they implore him to leave the, I mean, this is an intense passage here. There's intensity happening here movement why are they imploring him to leave their region because jesus had cut into their illegal piggy business that's why that's why they love their money and profit more than jesus more than this poor man more than the people of the land you know what the point in, in there is beloved some a lesson for us a miracle doesn't produce saving faith in anyone only the miracle of the new birth does that God can do in the human heart, right? Only the miracle of the new birth. Proof that miracles don't save anyone. For all the so-called signs and wonders people out there on national television talking about signs and wonders, all the people need is more miracles. Listen to me. None of those so-called miracles which are false save anyone if God doesn't touch the heart and show them the beauty of Christ. Nobody gets saved. Nobody is impacted. Except God works through His Spirit And through his word and the gospel in the heart of somebody. And what an unmerciful people, right? What an unmerciful people. Here's the man they knew most likely before he was demon possessed, while he was demon possessed. And now he's been healed. And instead of rejoicing over this man, what are they focused upon? Oh man, he's cutting into our business. Get out of here. We don't need you here. Leave. So we've seen four scenes from calm to chaos, from tormentor to servant, from feasting to slaughter, from riches to rags in verses 14 through 17, and scene five, notice, from slave to missionary. From slave to missionary, verses 18 through 20. This is the refocus of the camera upon this man, focusing upon the recipient of Jesus' miracle. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Right? This man right here became a new creature, beloved. We see the evidence of this here. He, He was delivered from being a slave to his sin and to Satan and to the demonic realm to now being a missionary for Christ. But notice what he wants to do in verse 18. And Jesus was getting into the boat to go back to the western shore. And the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him. There's the imploring again. He's begging Jesus repeatedly that he might accompany him. Jesus, I want to go with you. I want to go with you. I mean, wouldn't you do the same thing? Wouldn't you, if you had been in that condition and you had been a social outcast like that and you had experienced the peak of demonic activity in your very soul and Jesus had done what he had, wouldn't you want to be with him? We would want to be with him? I would. And Jesus could have said yes. After all, this man's testimony could really help Jesus back on the western side of Galilee where there's not a whole ton of multitudes wanting to believe in him, right? I need another witness. I need this guy with me. But the opposite happens, right? Look at verse 19. And he did not let him. But he says to him, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. It's really interesting, isn't it? Back in verse 10, Jesus grants the request of the demons not to send them out of that country. Verses 17 through 18, Jesus grants the request of the wicked people of that region to leave their region. But here in verse 19, to one of his own, Jesus does not grant the request of this man to go with him. Why? 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 He turns on the request of this man to accompany him because Jesus wants those people on the eastern shores amongst the the people of this man to hear about what great things Christ has done for him. He wants him to be a witness. A witness. Up until now, in the Gospel of Mark, you remember this, over and over again, doesn't Jesus keep silencing people from proclaiming about him? from talking about his great miracles, be quiet, be quiet, be quiet. But here, in an unreached area where he's not going to minister a whole lot on the eastern shores of the Sea of Galilee, he has a representative, a missionary there. He says, go and tell them about what great things God has done for you. Be a witness, be a missionary for me. And he obeys. Look at verse 20. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis, Decapolis there from two words: deca meaning ten, and polis meaning city. Nine of ten cities of the this Decapolis were on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee; one on the western side. It was primarily a heathen, gentile area. He goes away to this heathen area, the Decapolis, to proclaim what great things Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed. Man, can you imagine? This formerly demon-possessed man who had been a public spectacle was now not, no longer a madman. He was now a missionary. No longer a slave to Satan and demons and to his sin, but now a missionary for Christ. Wow. This largely Gentile area, saturated with demon possession, wasn't to hear about Christ. They needed Christ. They needed to hear about the excellencies of Christ, who is God. This is very interesting. In the parallel account of Luke 8.39, it says that Jesus instructed this man to describe what great things, listen, God had done for him. And then in the same verse, Luke 8.39, it says that the man went away proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. Who does he believe Jesus to be? God. God and isn't that the point of every single miracle? This guy got it, beloved. He got it. It was more than just a physical miracle for him. He understood who had delivered him—Jesus, who is God. Notice that Jesus didn't instruct this man, "Go and cast out demons." Follow my lead. And here's the here's the um, the formula: abracadabra, right? Hocus pocus. Or make sure you knock people down really good and have some catchers behind them. Is that what he did? No. He didn't send him out to go cast demons. He said, Go proclaim how great I am, what the Lord has done for you. Why? So that people would come to believe in Jesus as the God who saves. This is our story, too, isn't it, beloved? Isn't it? We were formerly spiritually dead in our sins, walking in darkness, following after Satan and his evil forces. But God, being rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Right? And next week, we're going to... Be reminded of the fact that we have been seated with Christ in the heavenly places by virtue of his glorious resurrection. We're no longer those who formerly walked in darkness. Now we are children of light in Christ Jesus. And why are we here on earth? Why did God, Jesus, leave this man on the eastern shores of the Sea of Galilee? He left him there to proclaim how merciful God had been to him and saved him. That is our mission. A disciple-making mission, beloved. That is why we are here, you see, over and over again from the Word of God, not from Kempis Hernandez, not from any elder or deacon in this church, not from any leader in evangelicalism, from the very Word of God, we are reminded again and again that no matter how hostile your home life would be, is, no matter how difficult your workplace is, no matter how hostile this culture in America is, no matter how much global devastation is taking place all over our our world god has us here to make disciples to preach christ that's why we're here that's why we're here we're reminded of that here see this man's world is not very different from ours and listen to me if you and i are sensitive to the spirit's leading and we have a compassionate heart like christ Each and every day, beloved, figuratively speaking, you can wake up to hear the distant wailing and screams and shrieking and cries of a world full of people who don't know Jesus. The gathering demoniac was not going to be the one listening to those shrieks. How ironic, right? of people who were either demon-possessed directly or influenced by the dark world in which he lived, now he was to be sensitive to those shrieks so that he was moved to have compassion for those people, telling of the greatness of Christ. He was to be moved that way now. How about us? We live daily amongst the walking dead. The ones who need life. And that life is found in Christ Jesus alone, right? Found in Him alone. Him alone. And so, can I ask you, Christian, this morning? You who have received the tender mercies and pities of God. Are you living to tell about what great things God in Christ has done for you? Is that how you're living life? In your home? In your neighborhood? In your work environment? As you shop around? during the week, wherever you live? Are you living to tell of the wonders of God? Are you living a holy Christ-like life so that people can see the way that you live and they can see that you're a child of light rather than a child of darkness? That there's a distinct difference in you. Not so that you can boast about how great of a person you are, but so that you can point to Jesus Christ and say, yeah, let me tell you why I live life differently. And let me tell you how still a great sinner I am. How every day I'm reminded of how good God is, even in my sin and my struggles. Is that how you're living your life? See, we can live life victoriously and as a light, even in the midst of our struggles. Pointing to Christ, confessing our sin, turning continually from our sin and putting on the mind of Christ, right? And the character of Christ. Are you living that way to display Christ? Are you living righteously so that people see you doing good and, and serve and how you love people, how you serve in the church and how you serve in your community? Is that how you're living? Are you a light for Christ? Like this man was called to be on the eastern shores of the Sea of Galilee who was delivered from slavery to his sin now to be a missionary for Christ, living righteously for Christ, that he would display Christ and glow for Christ. Is that how you're living your life, Christian? What about you if you are not a Christian this morning? Have you heard? How ironic, isn't it? Jesus instructs this man to go and tell of the great, the great things God has done for him, and you and I, you're sitting in here this morning as a non-Christian, you haven't turned from your sins and trusted in Christ, and you have just beheld the glory of Christ on the pages of Scripture, you've seen what great things Jesus did for this man. Will you believe in him? Will you turn from your sins... From a life of rebellion against God, your creator, to whom you are accountable. And will you give him glory with your life by putting your faith in his son, Jesus Christ, the only one who died to pay for sins, absorbed the wrath that you deserve for your sins, and rose again on the third day? Will you trust him? Will you believe in him? So that you can be one who then is propelled to be on mission saying, I want to tell everybody now after today what great things God has done for me in Christ Jesus. Will that be you today? Jesus alone sets the captives free. Amen? He does it, beloved. He's unrivaled in power. We're going to be celebrating that power next week. The resurrection power of Jesus Christ. Please come. I want us to celebrate and worship Christ together next Sunday morning, looking at Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 1 and seeing that resurrection power of God on display, not only in his son, but then in the way he raised us up from spiritual death. Amen? May we do that together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the power of Christ. He's our confidence. He's our joy. He's our ground for boasting. Help us this week, Lord, to be reminded of... Christ's person and his work and all that you accomplished through your Son. Why, Lord? Not because we deserve anything, but because you are a loving, kind God, and your justice was satisfied on the cross of your Son, who bore our sins, who took upon your wrath for our sins, but rose from the dead three days later, conquering sin and death. Help us to rejoice this week and to relish and to celebrate and to proclaim Christ's resurrection, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible, copyright by the Lockman Foundation.